Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Good afternoon, Arizona, and welcome to the Legitimate Podcast. I'm Mike Holton. This is my lovely wife, Rochelle Holton, and we are your hosts for today. Legitimate is where we share our legitimate perspectives on how to get ahead and stay ahead in law, business, and life. As I said, I'm Mike Holton, the managing partner of the law firm Holton & Naroyan. I do some business consulting, entrepreneur, inventor, other stuff like that. Uh, and this is Rochelle, and she is with X Firm and the Arizona Credit Law Group, uh, also a badass businesswoman in her own right. And I'll let her continue her own introduction <laughs> and speak <Hi>. for herself. <laughs> I'm Rochelle. I am also an attorney and co-host of Legitimate. And we help people with financial transaction planning, including stuff related to debt and credit issues. It's a pretty niche practice. And we're going to talk all about that today on our episode titled Zombie Debt. This is going to be a cool episode because I've been hearing about zombie debt for years from Rochelle. It's a major part of her legal practice dealing with zombie debt. And you're probably listening to this and thinking, what the heck is zombie debt? What are they talking about? This doesn't make sense. No, it makes perfect sense. You'll get it. It makes perfect sense. We're talking about debts that pop up out of nowhere when you didn't expect them, and you may never even known that they existed. And they just come up after floating out there for years, and they've been accruing interest the whole time. And so suddenly, out of nowhere, this zombie creditor pops up and starts grabbing at your wallet, trying to take your money and ruin your financial life. And many of, of Rochelle's clients suffer from this problem. And she has become quite adept at swatting away the zombies. Um, although, uh, as you all know, zombies can be very tough. And sometimes there just isn't that much you can do about them. So today's episode is going to cover the whole spectrum of zombie debt, from those zombies that are easily slayed and defeated to the zombies uh, that you just need to run away from. Because <laughs> you ain't going to be able to put them down. <laughs> A lot of that, a lot of that. But first, we've got our LBL moment. Well, oh yeah, the rackets first, then LBL. Uh, Yeah, we skipped LBL and the rackets last week because we had a a really big topic to cover. So this week, we're going to dedicate some real time to them. The rackets this time, uh, I'll give you a little intro here, Rochelle, is another major topic that I've been hearing about for years from her, and that is dealing with timeshares. And in fact, timeshares themselves can become zombie debt. Um, but Rochelle, what's going on with timeshares these days? What's the racket on timeshares now? The current racket on timeshares are companies advertising relief from timeshare liability. And one of the main problems with timeshares is when the approach to alleviating someone from liability is transferring title to somebody else. This is a really big problem because if you're not selling your timeshare and you're merely just transferring title it doesn't really help you because when you're dealing with timeshares, there's two pieces you've got to deal with. One, who owns it? And two, who owes the money to the timeshare company? Most of these timeshares tend to be financed. So you've got uh, a mortgage or a note and you also have title. So if all you're doing is transferring title, that doesn't solve the debt issue. So the timeshare company will still expect you to pay maintenance fees, this mortgage payment, And one other thing that I'm seeing, it's an unfortunate trend, but there was a time when a lot of these things got transferred to deceased third parties. So they were, the thought process was, oh, well, 
if you transfer this to someone who's not alive, then, you know, you don't have to pay the debt. And it's like, no, no, no. You actually just made it extremely difficult to undo that transaction because that transaction absolutely needs to be undone. And uh, it can really cause a lot of legal issues with what your options are for getting rid of the debt. That's a gigantic mess. It is. Frankly, it sounds like the sort of solution a toddler would come up with. It's you've got a timeshare that you don't want. So the idea is you just transfer the deed to a dead guy. Obviously, that's not going to work the way you hope it will. When you say it out loud, it sounds ridiculous. (laughs) When you say it out loud, it sounds ridiculous because it doesn't work. You can't just give an obligation to a dead guy and give the finger to your creditors. It doesn't actually work that way. The timeshare company is going to come back to you and say, oh, we don't have your payments for the last two years since you did this. And if the next thing you tell them is, oh, no, no, no. See, I I gave the timeshare to a dead guy. So I don't owe you any of that money. They will laugh and sue you and win. Because you can't get rid of an obligation to a third party by unilaterally transferring it to some other third party. Nope. Uh, Doesn't work that way. You sure can give title to some dead third party. You've just given all the beneficial interest in your timeshare to the heirs of someone you don't know. You've definitely given that up but you have not gotten yourself off the hook for the monthly management fees or any of the other financial obligations that you incurred along with that timeshare. And because you don't own it anymore, your options for relieving yourself of liability are limited. Really limited. (laughs) So, you know, I see it all the time. And the unfortunate thing and why it's on the rackets is because when that happens, they actually charged you money to do this. Normally somewhere between 3,500 and 5,000 bucks. It is an obscene amount of money. It does not solve your problem. Please, please, please don't do it. I keep getting these cases and it's like, I, this is a nightmare. It takes me like a year to get someone out of a timeshare, a year. And that's me being kind of a pain in the butt. There is a legal process that you have to follow. A lot of timeshare companies are very reluctant to get rid of timeshare liability. Like you have to negotiate your liability. You have to negotiate title. Those two things are a package deal. So if you are getting timeshare relief from somebody, make sure you understand what they are actually doing for you and what you're paying for. And if it sounds weird, get a second opinion. Absolutely. So that is our rackets moment, which leads us right into our LVL moment. Law, business, and life. Law, business, and life. And today we want to talk about law and how vast it is. (laughs) <laughs> we're going to spend some time on this one. We were, we always talk about our LBL moment before we come on the show. And this is one where we had a little segment planned. And as we started talking over it, it uh, became a big segment. We want to help people understand what different kinds of attorneys are out there and when you need a particular type versus when you may need somebody else, when you can go to a generalist versus when you need a specialist, what kinds of specialists there are. Uh, all of these sorts of things are important. So let's dig into it. Rochelle and I are both attorneys. We are not the same kind of attorney. There is very little overlap between our two practices. We refer people back and forth to each other because we don't do what the other one does. And that may be confusing to people. In fact, I know it's confusing to some of our friends. Uh, (laughs) Most of our friends ask us, so you guys don't work together? You don't share a firm? Like, how does that go? Uh, Well, no, we do totally different things. Uh, There's just no particular reason for us to work together. Our business models are totally separate. The ways we get clients are separate. 
the people we deal with on the other side are separate. It's all totally different, uh, which is part of what makes it interesting for us to talk to each other about our careers and bounce stuff off of each other. Here's the bottom line, though. There are generalists in law who cover broad segments of certain practice areas, and they can be a really good choice for some things within those practice areas. It's like your family doctor. Your family doctor is great for family medicine. They're a generalist. And if you need a general situation dealt with, uh, you go to your family doctor. But your family doctor is not going to treat your cancer. Your family doctor will be aware that you have cancer and hopefully will refer you to an oncologist. But if you have cancer, you need an oncologist. Family doctors don't do chemotherapy. They don't do radiation. They're not surgeons, with few exceptions. All of those things are specialties. And even within the specialties, there are subspecialties. Oncologists, some do surgery, some don't. Some are radiation oncologists, uh, some are not. Well, with attorneys, you'll find it's the same way. There are some general practitioners who do bankruptcy. There are others who do not. Um, There are some who do residential landlord-tenant on the tenant side, um, defending against evictions, dealing with bad landlords. Uh, There are others who do not. Those are things where if a generalist does it, and it's a big part of their practice, it's probably fine to use the generalist for that. But if they don't do it, you're going to need somebody else. And if they only do it a little bit, or they seem pretty unsure about it, you're going to need somebody else. (laughs) So where we see this happen a lot is people, there really are kind of two divides. There's criminal law, and there's civil law. And civil is very vast. There are a lot of things that are, you know, under civil law. Both Mike and I would be considered civil attorneys. We are civil attorneys. Because when we say rule 11, we mean something very specific. (laughs) And if you're a criminal attorney and you say rule 11, we have no idea what you're talking about. Well, we (laughs) We both know what it actually is, but we don't deal with that. We don't know. And that really highlights how vast the differences are. Civil attorneys refer to the rules of civil procedure. Criminal attorneys refer to the rules of criminal procedure. They're totally different. They're totally different. Rule 11 in the criminal context refers to defendants who are uh, too mentally handicapped, uh, insane, um, crazy people, detached from reality, uh, who are too incompetent to be tried for a crime. Whereas on the civil side, Rule 11 is the rule that requires attorneys uh, to properly research Uh, what they present to the court and behave ethically before the courts and not lie to the judge. Those are totally different things. They're just different. They just share a number, but they're in different rule sets and we all just banter them around like we we all know what we're talking about because these separate areas are so completely separate and it's that way throughout the rules. So I can't help you with your DUI. I can't help you with criminal charges. I don't do immigration law. Those are all extreme specialties. You know, there are very specific practice areas and you need someone that does it. Uh, You see this all the time. And so it can be really confusing when you're calling an attorney and doing a consultation and not really knowing what they can do for you. So the best bet is Google is great. If you don't know what you're looking for, if you consult with an attorney, they'll at least be able to point you in the right direction. It's very common for people to book a consult with me or Mike, and, you know, we refer them to someone who can actually help them. You know, like, this is actually, you need, you know, X kind of attorney, let me get you over. Like, if you're a commercial landlord and you need an attorney who can review your lease documents and uh, sue a tenant, well, that's not me. Like, let me, let me push you on over to Mike. (laughs) 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 
I represent people who sue businesses, not the other way around. <laughs> and when I get people who have personal debt issues or any kind of a problem with a creditor that's not a business debt, that goes right over to Rochelle. That's what I do. Yep. So just kind of like remembering that when you're talking to an attorney and you're you're not really sure what you need, just ask a lawyer. They will happily point you in the right direction. Um, and also remember, that's what consultations are for. If, you know, you're feeling a little unsure about, you know, something like, especially a business document or any type of agreement, any kind of paperwork, or just want general advice, this is why you consult with an attorney. You know, you usually save yourself a lot of money just by asking the questions from someone who has the knowledge. We did go to law school. We went to school freaking forever. We had to learn this stuff. And that's what, why we became lawyers is to actually help our communities. So book your consultations with attorneys and find out what you need. Um, and remember, attorneys don't, you can't just give your lawyer paperwork and then drop off the face of the planet. We are not, we can't represent you effectively unless you communicate with us. That is true. <laughs> Uh, clearly and honestly, it's our job to do the spin. We don't need you to do the spin to us. Our, we are the spin masters, so we need all the facts so we know what we need to deal with on the other side. We'll make the facts work for you the best we can. Yeah. you got to have all of them up front. So tell us. Yeah. And that, that, incidentally, is a huge difference between us and criminal law attorneys. If you are dealing with a criminal law attorney in a criminal defense context, do not tell them anything they don't ask you for. It is exactly the opposite. Do not retain a criminal attorney and then immediately confess to a bunch of criminal offenses. That is not how it works. That's not will, their job. They will tell you. <laughs> to what, stop talking. They will tell you to stop talking <laughs> and they will tell you what they want to know. Uh, <laughs> For me, I want to know everything. I want you to tell me everything about your case that you can think of and give me whatever you think is relevant that I should know. And don't hold back. Yep. I can make the truth work for you. <laughs> yep. If you got something you're thinking about that you think is really bad and you want to keep it under wraps, that yep. is the first thing your attorney needs to know about. <laughs> On the civil side. <laughs> On the civil side, <laughs> not the criminal side. <laughs> On the criminal side, keep your mouth shut. If you haven't seen that YouTube video with the two criminal defense attorneys. Giving uh, excellent advice. Giving excellent public service advice uh, to shutting shut the F, F up. up. Um, that's a great video and they are absolutely Google it. It is right. Their (laughs) advice is sound on the criminal side. So Rochelle, when it comes to areas of practice, I want to just run through what it is where people ought to be looking for a real specialist, real specialist, not a, not a generalist who does a number of things. And I've got a few in mind, but go for it. Where are the things that you think people ought to head to a narrow specialist in law? narrow specialist. Well, I mean, obviously, if you're dealing with real estate, you want to go to a real estate attorney. (laughs) Real estate areas of law are extremely vast. And we'll talk more about zombie debt and how complicated that is. But you also want to go if you're a professional and you network, and you know, attorneys in a networking group, go to them first, because they'll have their own network of professionals that they can refer you to. But, you know, something general like, oh, just Google State Bar. Well, a lot of people select a lot of practice areas on the State Bar that may they may or may not actually practice in. Yeah, it's not a reliable indicator. And even sites like Avo or Lawyer.com, um, I mean, they're great. If you look me up on there, you'll see a number of practice areas that I've engaged in in the past that I don't do anymore, like residential landlord tenant. Um, I've got a lot of content online, some content online about residential landlord tenant. And I know there are databases out there that say I do it. 
doesn't mean I actually do. If you call me for residential landlord tenant, I will refer you uh, to someone else. So you can't really rely on those kinds of things out there. You got to know what people are actually doing today, uh, what their practice really looks like. But for me, I think criminal defense, go to a criminal defense attorney. Um, and in fact, look for a particularly good one. Uh, if it's a DUI issue, I would suggest that you look for a high volume DUI practice. Um, they operate on high volume with great efficiency. They know uh, what they're doing. They know what they're doing. They, they personally know everyone in the prosecutor's office and all of the judges and the administrative staff and everyone else who are involved in processing those cases. Uh, that also applies to uh, low-level drug crimes. If you're charged with drug possession uh, or, well, I mean, it applies to high-level drug crimes too, right? If you're charged with sale, obviously you need a very good attorney for that, but you're not looking at a high-volume practice in that case. You want someone who does major felonies. Uh, and who has a great trial record, like Thomas Henniger, for example. Maybe uh, <laughs> you were protesting and you got arrested. Yes. This is a great time to call a criminal defense attorney. Yes. There are tons uh, of them doing pro bono work and doing consultations and helping people walk through that process. Yes. So like, that's a great time to use a criminal defense attorney. Like Armando Nava, for example, if you're involved in the protests, he's the guy to go talk to. Uh, there are a number of people out there in certain areas like that where they are the go-to person. And this applies on the civil side in certain other contexts. I recently received a call from someone who was looking for assistance defending against a state licensing board action um, involving a business license activity. And I'm not going to be more specific than that, but it was uh, an enforcement action being taken against a business license by a state agency. And I said, man, I don't know who it is, but you got to find who's doing that one thing in this town. Google is really There's, helpful. Yes. Someone is doing an AdWords campaign on that. Probably. And if they're not, then call around to some other administrative law attorneys and ask not if they can help you, but if they know who is doing those administrative procedure hearings in this town, because there are only going to be a handful of people on that. And they know all of the individuals involved. They know the administrative law judges. They know how things actually work, and it's really important that you have that person do it. And it's the same for uh, zoning and land use in this town. I do commercial real estate law. I don't do zoning and land use. I partner with some other specific attorneys when my clients need that because the people who do it well know the right people. It's all about knowing the right people and being very comfortable and familiar with the process as it occurs here. Can I look up those rules and figure it out? Yeah, of course I could. But it would take me several years of intense work in that practice area to get to the point where I'm as comfortable with the procedural aspects and can predict the outcomes as well as someone who is, you know, one of the three or four people who are doing that at, here in Phoenix. And that's why they call it legal practice. Yes. We freaking practice. We practice and practice <laughs> and practice and practice. And then we retire. Yes. So <laughs> if you're looking for someone to to represent you in one of those niche areas like that, uh, admin, anything dealing with an administrative agency, um, you need one of the few attorneys to deal with that problem in that agency. That's who you want. You don't want somebody who hasn't done that before. Uh, and if you have general counsel like me, they will probably advise you to look for that specialist or help hook you up with that specialist instead of trying to do it themselves. So remember, just because you talk to an attorney and you don't feel like you got the answer you needed, that, you know, to stop. 
you got to keep asking. Oh, yeah. like, keep asking. Just there keep are people checking. out there that can definitely help you. So, in yeah. second opinions are great, third opinions are great, but once you get to six or seven and everyone's telling you the same thing, you probably have the right answer. <laughs> True. <laughs> All right, we'll move on to our B moment in business, which are business mentors and coaches. Like there is. I'm a big fan of asking for help when you need it. So sometimes in business, we all get stuck and sometimes you just need a little push forward. And that's when it's a great time to get a consultant or get a coach to kind of help you move through whatever hurdles that you're facing. Sometimes uh, you just need someone to help you with marketing and someone to you know get you in the right direction. Or you may need help with rebranding your entire website, or you may want to completely switch what your business does or close it down and start a new one. Whenever those things happen, having some kind of coach or mentor or consultant is a great idea. And there are so many out there. There are tons and tons and tons of these resources. You can just Google business consultant, coach, mentor, and you'll find uh, a ton of them. So what we wanted to talk about was, remember, they're great, but find someone that is a good fit for you. Like you need to be able to respect the person that you're talking to and that you're getting advice from. And you don't need to pay for things that you don't think you're getting a benefit out of. Like if you're just in a a monthly subscription program for a coach uh, for years and years and years, and your business hasn't grown, it's time to take a look and see if maybe you should look at something else. I agree. Transitional relationships. I agree that business coaching is great and mentorship is great, but I tend to think that business coaches and mentors themselves are kind of like hamburgers. There are some excellent hamburgers. There are really very good hamburgers out there, but uh, there are also a lot of burgers that are not very good. And you got to know what kind of burger you're eating before you decide you're going to finish the whole thing. Yes. Um, Not everyone who does coaching or holds themselves out as a mentor really has anything worth listening to, to say. Um, There are plenty of people making money out of providing advice that's not particularly sound. Um, And yes, and it it really is an entire industry. And in fact, it may be harder uh, to find a good one than to find just any business coach or mentor. Agreed. Interviews are great. Picking carefully matters a lot. Um, Be careful who you listen to. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. It means that you should do it, but you got to put the effort into finding the right people to build those relationships with. Yes. Absolutely. Oh, that brings up another good point about business coaches and mentors uh, that I'd like to mention real quick. And that is they kind of come in two different categories, in my opinion, those who bring uh, formal training and credentials to the table and those who bring personal experience and attitude to the table. And both of those are quite valuable in different ways. People who have uh, exceptional training or resumes, who maybe have held executive positions in large companies, uh, who are published researchers uh, in management fields, things like that, um, those are excellent business consultants to work with if you get a good one who's a good fit for solving your management problems. And you can learn a lot. And it's all about learning Uh, factual information that you may not have gathered in your education. They can provide a load of focused education for you to fill in gaps in your management and business ownership capabilities. They'll do your SWOT analysis. They'll tell you what's up with your business, what your key strengths are, what you need to focus on. They are fabulous. Help you learn how to analyze a deal, uh, how to deal with accounting, read books, uh, evaluate the value of a business you want to buy, stuff like that. 
that's what resume-based or, or credential-based um, mentorship and coaching is good for. On the other side, you've got people who are just naturally good leaders, naturally good with people. Have had businesses. Have had businesses. Like KLM Consulting. Yes, exactly. And Kelly, she's And awesome. <laughs> the bottom line is, in business, it's the results that matter. Um, your resume is worthless if you don't deliver. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what matters is that you achieve success by whatever performance uh, objectives or metrics you deem most important. And there are a lot of people out there who can provide you with mentorship and advice who may not have any formal credentials. But when you talk to them and when you learn about their networks and their accomplishments in business or management, it can become immediately apparent uh, that they didn't need credentials. (laughs) They're worth listening to because of who they are and the skill set that they've built themselves. They clearly know what's up. They clearly know what's up. And it's important to find those people and work with them too. And so you know them when you hear them. You know them when you hear them. There, there are plenty of them out there. And uh, those people are, are worth looking for and, and meeting. Yeah. So and like anything, uh, when you hire any type of service, there are contracts involved when you hire yes. a coach. So, you know, if you don't know what you're agreeing to, make sure that you either read it or you have your attorney read it. Um, because sometimes those agreements, you know, they're really hard to get out of, especially if it's a year-long contract. Like, that's highly unusual. So just pay attention to how much those fees cost. Because if you're spending $100,000 a year on a coach and it's not working for you and you have no way out, that's bad. Yep. <laughs> and that happens. So just be be aware of uh, that issue. But last up on our life moment is Halloween. It's coming, but it's a pandemic. So I have no idea what's happening. There's uh, the pumpkin nights happening. There's a few uh, in-car events that you can go to with the family. But I don't know what anyone's doing for trick-or-treating. I'm not sure anybody's going to be out and about. So we're just curious to find out. I saw a picture online the other day. Somebody had a house where their porch was up like five steps from the sidewalk and they built a candy slide that goes down uh, the handrail of their steps so the kids can come up and put their bucket at the bottom of the slide and they can slide the candy down to them without getting too close. Adorbs. It was pretty cute. I liked that. Alas, our porch is at ground level, so we can't do that here. (laughs) We can like launch it at you, but we don't think that's ideal or recommended. (laughs) All right. Now we'll get into our topic. Zombie Zombie debt. So first off, what is it? Um, Well, it's old debt that comes back to bite you. (laughs) There are really two types we want to focus on, and that are is judgments and mortgages. So first up is judgments. Judgments, people may or may not know they have them out there. And it's because in Arizona, we have a very... um, We have a system for not actually serving people in person. So there's actual personal service where someone hands you a document uh, after knocking on your door. And then there's alternative service where they mailed it to you or taped it to your door or and you didn't know you got it because you moved. Who knows? Or they served your ex. It always it happens and it happens with alarming regularity. Uh, It happens so often that the course were like, well, you got to try harder to serve people. Um, They didn't like the alternative service was being somewhat abused by especially debt collectors. And that's really what we're talking about are these debt collection lawsuits that happened back in 2006, 2010, 2014, and they're still hanging out there. And it's important to note that in Arizona, judgments used to expire after five years. 
most of the West Coast was like that, where a judgment, you know, you could renew it. And if you didn't renew it, it would go away. But most states have changed their statute of limitations on collection of judgments to closer to a decade and then renewable for another decade and arguably renewable again. So you're looking at debt that can haunt you for 30, 40 years. That's a really long time. And one of the issues that I deal with are people wondering, is this legal? So if you get a knock on your door or a you know, knock on your bank account or your wages get garnished because of one of these old debts that you didn't know about, the first reaction that people have is, is this legal? You know, I, I thought it was only a $700 credit card. How do I owe $30,000? And the answer is interest. Interest on a debt over the course of a decade uh, compounds and it's a lot. And especially if it was something at 18% or 30%, I think the worst judgment I ever saw was 399%. Totally legal, completely ridiculous. So I was talking to Mike earlier this week about this particular problem and, um, you know, what are the remedies for, you know, people who feel like this isn't fair. And there are a lot of watchdog organizations out there that are starting to understand that this, you know, zombie judgment debt and the post-judgment interest is, you know, kind of a legal phenomenon. It's not something we're used to dealing with because the courts weren't really designed to handle this particular problem with debt collectors. Like the debt rise of the debt collection lawsuit is relatively recent. Like you would get sued by a debt collector, but it wasn't the thousands and thousands and thousands of lawsuits that we're dealing with today. And so a lot of people are just now starting to realize that, oh, I got sued on this credit card debt 15 years ago. And uh, I had no idea, like, there's no way this is valid. I want to, you know, contest the judgment. So I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about post-judgment relief and what that actually looks like. Because people think that, you know, oh, well, if you just file a motion with the court, the judge will reduce your interest or the judge will reopen your case. And that's kind of a misconception of the law. Dealing with judgments after uh, they've been entered is extremely difficult to navigate. Um, you have very limited options and sometimes you're limited to six months from the date that it was entered. So if you find out about it five, 10 years later, you're so far past, you know, kind of the ability to do anything about it. And I know it seems unfair and illegal. And sometimes the reality is it's totally valid. You totally owe it. And you have to look at options for resolving it. And I think that's the worst part of zombie debt is that it can really ruin uh, the financial success of a household simply because you didn't know it existed. I deal with this issue heartbreakingly quite often. And, you know, people always want to know, can't I just file a motion? And the answer is no. What do you have to say, Mike? All of that's accurate. Judgments in Arizona now last pretty much forever, it would seem, uh, unlike most states 15, 20 years ago, where if a judgment couldn't be collected fairly rapidly, it was not going to be collected ever. Now, uh, really as a result of lobbying by financial institutions is what it comes down to, the timelines for collection have been extended dramatically. It is important to note that in Arizona, it's fairly easy to get alternative service approved by a judge so that you can get a default judgment against someone, go through a lawsuit with them and, and get a judgment against them without them ever knowing that it's occurring. And the, 
the peak of this activity was maybe five years ago in Arizona, would be my guess, based on what I saw dealing with alternative service, because it is something that I every plaintiff's attorney has to do sometimes. If you can't find the person you're suing, you're going to have to follow this process and you're going to get a default judgment against them. Um, the catch is that the rule was intended to be used uh, by attorneys like me who are in good faith looking for the defendant, trying to find them, hiring private investigators to track them down, looking at all the public records for their other addresses, sending mail everywhere, staking out their houses, you know, really putting some effort and some money into finding the defendant so you can bring them into court and have them participate in the litigation process. That's what it's for. Because sometimes you can't succeed at that. Sometimes the private investigators go out and do their thing, stake out some houses, find out that they're all renters, find out that there's a property management company that's collecting their rent, find out that the guy you're looking for left the country two years ago and has been in Aruba ever since. I mean, these are real things that happen. Uh, these that's are actual things I've service. dealt with. So yeah. that's, that's why alternative service exists. What it's not supposed to be for is when you open a uh, store credit account uh, at a department store when you lived in Iowa 15 years ago and you moved away and you thought you had closed the account, but it turns out you had a $600 balance and you just skipped uh, and they didn't put any effort into finding you. They sent a process server to your former address there and you weren't home. So they filed a motion in court to say, well, Your Honor, we can't find him. We want a default judgment. And they get it. And then 15 years later, here we are, and you've got a default judgment against you with interest accruing the whole time at a credit card interest rate. And now you owe tens of thousands of dollars on something that you totally forgot even existed. You may think that's far-fetched. I hear about this every day from Rochelle. This is her bread and butter. Uh, it's a huge portion of her practice dealing with the consequences from these default judgments. And hopefully we can see some legislative change to make this a little bit more consumer friendly. But that's another thing we were talking about right before the show. Uh, we were going to say, you know, it matters. Call your legislators. Go vote. And then we both laughed and said, it doesn't matter. <laughs> There's nobody you can vote for who's going to fix this for you. It's, it's not, not on radar. anyone's radar. <laughs> This isn't an issue anybody's looking at, but no matter which side of the aisle you pick, uh, nobody's going to fix this for you right now. Um, the only way this is going to work is if somebody in Arizona does a ballot initiative and puts money behind that, uh, or if financial reform like that becomes a hot button topic between the parties. And that doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon. Didn't even work during the Occupy protests. And that's as close as we've gotten to bringing these issues to the forefront. It's really unfortunate because, you know, people want to want to know that they don't have to pay. And the unfortunate reality is you probably do. So yes. you always want to make sure that you're, you've got the paperwork. You actually know what it was for. It's actually your debt. Mistakes do happen. You can fix it when it's not yours. But, you know, when it's you and it's been a decade, you know, you're looking at some pretty crappy options for resolving it. The first option I always recommend is, you know, taking a look at your financial situation and seeing if you can afford to settle the debt. I mean, if you're talking about a $3,000 credit card from 10 years ago that you currently owe $3,000 on, well, maybe it's better off settling it than really just, you know, trying to pick a fight and, and, and going that route. Because most attorneys are going to charge you more than the debt is worth uh, to litigate that. And, you know, the most economical approach may be to actually just do that settlement. 
And in some cases, when you're already in wage garnishment and or worse, bank account garnishment, and you need relief now and you don't have the funds to do settlement, the unfortunate reality is you may be looking at bankruptcy. Uh, Chapter 7 bankruptcy is to give people a fresh start and to officially close the book on these kinds of issues, you know, so back taxes, uh, these old zombie judgments, um, dealing with, you know, just credit card debt, medical bills, that is what, you know, a good opportunity to kind of take a look and see if maybe bankruptcy can solve your problem with the least amount of stress possible and the least amount of financial uh, stress. Uh, A lot of people are worried about bankruptcy and the effect on credit. And I counsel them on that all the time. Most of my clients are back in the 680s, you know, six months after they file. Why? Because we know credit. That's our job is to help you reestablish credit and have good credit when you're done. Um, That's like a big part of my personal philosophy is for everyone to have perfect credit because you don't run into these options, these problems. You end up having more options to deal with your financial future. But at the same time, I understand it is stressful and it's a difficult decision And it may not be what you want to hear, but the reality is when it comes to having zombie debt judgments, your options are limited. You can fight it, you can settle, or you can declare bankruptcy. That's pretty much it. There are some, of course, novel options that I like to explore whenever the opportunity arises, but litigation in Arizona on that is an uphill battle. There are plenty of attorneys that'll, you know, flex on Facebook and social media and say, oh, just file a motion. The judge will, you know, work with you. I would love to see that case. I'd love to see it. Love to see it happen. Specifically, the the biggest issue where this comes up is uh, post-judgment interest, or at least default interest. So you've got a an agreement of some kind for a debt. Let's call it a credit card. Your credit card interest rate is uh, 15%. But the contract says that if you're in default, the interest rate jumps up to 30. That's not uncommon. Mm-mm. And you can debate all day whether it makes sense from an economic perspective to increase the interest rate in case of default. What does that really represent? Uh, collection risk? I don't know. There, there's a lot to be debated on that. But the bottom line is, if you make that agreement and you borrow the money on those terms, then that's real and it's binding. So if you default on that credit card account, your defaulted balance, uh, whatever it is that you're not paying, will accrue interest at 30% annually. And after a few years, that's going to become uh, just a staggering debt burden. And you can end up with a couple thousand dollars ballooning to nearly $100,000 in just several years, uh, certainly less than the time it takes the judgment to expire. So Rochelle ends up with clients who get surprised by a zombie judgment that shows up from a defaulted uh, credit account from a decade earlier. And they may owe sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars on that on something that had an original debt of four figures, not five. And the question is, is that enforceable? Can they actually collect all that interest? You've got a principal balance here. The money you actually spent on that credit card may have been four thousand dollars or six, let's say. Uh, you actually bought six thousand dollars worth of stuff with that credit card, and that's the amount of money the credit card company is actually out because you didn't pay them, but they're coming after you for 80 grand. How is that okay? Well, it's okay because the law says it's okay and because the case law supports it. So you may think that you can go into court and file a motion with the judge to have that interest reduced or struck and and, uh, pay only a reasonable interest rate, whatever you think that is. 
maybe pay the statutory interest rate, which is like four point something percent in floats, but it's generally in the fours. Um, maybe that's what you think ought to happen. Well, it ain't going to happen. Not in Arizona. Uh, Rochelle's tried it. Other attorneys have tried it. Lots of attorneys have talked about it as if it's a viable option. Lots of people spout off about how, oh, you had post-judgment relief. Yeah, just file a motion to reduce that. I've never seen it, not even once. Never seen it succeed because there's no legal basis for it in Arizona. There's nothing you can cite to support that, to tell a judge, Your Honor, this is why you have the authority to do what I'm asking, to reduce that interest rate. This is why. Uh, And just shouting about fairness ain't going to get the job done because this is a court of law. Uh, not a court of equity, and that distinction um, is an important one. And, and I this, litigate these yes. issues, and I keep litigating these issues because I figure at some point I'm going to get through to some judge who's going to be sick of reading all of my motions and realize that this is actually something that, you know, hopefully the judiciary can help us with. You know, maybe we expand the parameters of what post-judicial relief looks like because it is supposed to be equitable. You're not supposed to get an $80,000 windfall in court. That's not what we intended as a society. There's no way that's actually what we intended. But the unfortunate reality is the law hasn't caught up with the times. And, you know, the law is slow that way. So when you're dealing with zombie debt like this, sometimes, you know, bankruptcy is just the better option. Like, I know it sucks and you don't want to do it, but when you're looking at, a staggering amount of money and liquidating your entire retirement account, your savings, or worse, you don't have the funds to pay it, you know, that may be the best option for you. Obviously, if they all settle and they'll be reasonable, that's great. But a lot of law firms uh, are, you know, not inclined. They will not settle for pennies on the dollar. That's another big myth out there is that, oh, you can settle for 10 cents on the dollar, 15 cents on the dollar, 30, 30 cents on whatever. No, that's not what it is. It used to be that way maybe a decade ago, um, especially when I first started practicing, that was somewhat reasonable. But now, you know, a lot of companies are looking at 80%. Sometimes if you're lucky, 60. I mean, it is a staggering amount of money that these companies want. So don't take it lightly and don't think it's just going to go away because it's not. Sorry to be a downer. You may be wondering uh, what changed that results in these companies refusing to settle for the amounts that they would have settled for five or 10 years ago. Uh, What changed is the overall market dynamics. This is an economic transaction. The settlement value of a debt which is to be settled depends entirely on the relative party's ability to pay and willingness to accept a reduced amount. So debt collectors are economists, fundamentally. They are very rational, unfortunately, in their decision-making on the whole about these things. And when they see that they can squeeze people harder and get more juice out of them, they squeeze them harder and they take your juice. And The debt collection industry is a multi-billion dollar industry now. So there's a lot more incentive and a lot more players than there used to be. It's a big issue, but we're running out of time and I want to switch to mortgages because that's really Yeah, (laughs) this is super fun. Man, this is going to be some complicated stuff. This is one of the more complicated uh, legal issues that we've delved into, I would say, the zombie second mortgages. Yes, so zombie seconds happen uh, primarily in two ways. And please excuse my gross oversimplification of how this happens. So the first way is uh, back in the early 2000s when people bought high and they didn't have equity in their homes, but they wanted to stay out of foreclosure, people executed loan modifications. And sometimes those things didn't include the second. 
The problem is most homeowners didn't know that their loan modification didn't include the second mortgage. And so they just stopped paying on it. And then eventually the sucker fell off their credit report because they only report for seven years. And now it's 2020 and it's, you finally have equity in your home. You're ready to sell, you're ready to refinance and boom, there is a lien on your property for the second mortgage you completely forgot about. Which you haven't been paying on. In a decade or so. It's not uncommon. I see this. I deal with this. This is like super nerd real estate law for me. I am, I enjoy it. So you have a couple of options for dealing with that first scenario. And the first one is, you know, trying to get a lien release. Sometimes people paid these things and the company just never recorded a lien release. And you would think, oh, it's going to be really easy. Well, you can go through a lot of attorneys trying to figure out how to get a lien release done. And, you know, it's, it's a pretty complicated situation, but you do need a real estate law attorney who understands what the process needs to be to get a lien release on a second mortgage. And sometimes it's just as simple as us making a request to the correct party, but we have to find the correct party. We're also dealing with a situation where a bunch of banks went under <laughs> during that time frame between 2008 and 2011. They got bought out. They got sold. You also had the rise of MERS. And, you know, there's a bunch of factors that go into figuring out who actually is servicing this debt, who is legally responsible for recording a lien release. And there's a couple of different paths to take. And, you know, I'm not going to lie. We're really good at it. We can do it in about 15 days if we need to on the fly, if you have this problem. But if you are somebody else and you're not really sure where to go and you just want to consult with me as an attorney, or if you are another attorney or you're a professional in the industry, I'm super friendly. You can just like message me and I am happy to have this conversation with you about my process. Because the more of us that are out there doing it, the better it is for everybody. So when you're dealing with that issue, you do want to talk to a lawyer and you don't want to contact the creditor on your own because you need to avoid reaffirming the debt. You can't just start paying on your second mortgage after 10 years. There's been interest that's accrued. There's certain portions of it that are subject to contract law statute of limitations because it is a note. There's still a lien. Like it's kind of the same issue with the timeshare, right? You've got the mortgage and then you got title and you got to deal with both. Like if you still own the property, (laughs) that's title, but there's still a mortgage lien out there that you have to deal with. Yeah, it is a lot like the timeshare issue, mm-hmm. although it adds an additional degree of complexity with a difference between in-rem and in-personum liability on the mortgage debt, whether the creditor can pursue the money from you or whether they can only assert an interest against your property but can never make you personally pay. Uh, it's a real nuanced legal distinction, but it's not something we're just making up. It's really at the core of this issue, and it comes up in all of these matters. It's pretty complicated. It's been litigated up one side and down the other. You don't generally need litigation to resolve this. Sometimes you do. Mm -hmm. There are weird problems with zombie seconds that do require litigation, perhaps more frequently than a lot of other issues. But with most zombie seconds, you can resolve this outside of court pretty expeditiously. But like Rochelle mentioned, it's got to be handled just right from start to finish. This isn't something where you can try it yourself, and if it doesn't work out, then you can get the attorney involved. That's a huge, big mess. Uh, This is more like taming a wild elephant. Uh, You you just get the trainer in there. Get the elephant guy to come handle the elephant. Don't try to do the elephant yourself and then (laughs) go find the elephant guy after the elephant stomped all over you. Yeah, don't do that. At that point, the elephant's angry. It's all messy. You've gotten stomped on. It's too late. You got to get the elephant guy in there to deal with the elephant right off the bat. 
Rochelle's yes. the elephant guy, in case you were wondering. And there are a couple other of us out there. <laughs> yes. You can Google it. Like, there are a few of us that are just totally tackling this issue. So, um, you know, Google's pretty handy for this specific type of problem. But if you want, like, sometimes you do owe it. Like, you still owe the yeah. second, you didn't pay it off, and you have to negotiate a resolution. Companies will settle. It is something that needs to be handled by an attorney because the language has to work out just right, especially if you're trying to refinance your mortgage or sell. The timing of when things get paid matters a lot. So all of that has to add up. And you just want someone who does this routinely. This is that time where you don't want a generalist. You want someone who yeah. handles this pretty regularly. I would not attempt this. I would refer it specifically to Rochelle. It's something where this exact transaction format has to have been tested and refined repeatedly in order to get optimal results. Yes. And she did that. <laughs> and I'm not a specialist because technically I don't have, there is no specialization in law for what right. I do. So, but I, I do this bar, all the time. The State Bar of Arizona prohibits us from using the word specialist or expert. or expert to describe anything that we do in connection with our practices. Uh, so we don't say that. Instead, we say, yeah, I do, do that. <laughs> so the second time, the second way that this kind of zombie debt arises is when someone filed a Chapter 7 bankruptcy back in 2006, to maybe 2015, and they thought that they discharged their second mortgage in their bankruptcy. So they stopped making payments. Maybe they kept making payments on the first. Maybe no one ever bothered to foreclose on them. And then they eventually were able to catch up on the first and just thought the second went away. That is a very common misconception that happened because up until generously 2013, most attorneys didn't understand how that worked. Not judges, not attorneys, most real estate professionals weren't sure how that was going to shake out in Chapter 7 bankruptcy, but now it's pretty well settled law. So you could be uh, an unfortunate party. In this kind of a situation where, you know, you thought that your second was discharged in the bankruptcy and it wasn't. And again, you're going to sell, you're going to refinance and you discover that there is a lien still attached to your property. To your property. And is so, this an in-rim versus in-personum issue? It's still an in-rim yeah. versus in-personum. So you've discharged the personal liability, but the debt, uh, well, the, the lien specifically against the property still exists. Yeah. And That's it's tricky. it's messy. Yeah. It's messy because sometimes the mortgage company will offer to do a loan modification on the second. And there's <laughs> no, there's like you discharged your liability in a bankruptcy. There is no personal liability there's no loan for to you. The loan itself is gone. The lien exists. that was associated with the loan to begin with still exists. And so you kind of end up with a situation where you know, how much do you still owe on that lien? You know, like how much is still there? And that is a... a it's a brain teaser puzzle, really. Yes. So uh, it's, yeah. uh, you've got statute of limitations and you'll you'll talk to some lenders. They'll be like, there's no statute of limitations on liens. They're wrong. <laughs> there are. And, you know, but they're also not dealing with the bigger picture of contract law that also is an overlay on top of that. Plus you've got the bankruptcy code. So you're dealing with three huge areas of law that all intersect. And for this, there are options, thankfully, for getting out of these and resolving this type of zombie debt. And the first one, of course, is requesting a lien release. Sometimes the company, the debt's no longer valid. Sometimes that happens. That's, it just happens. And so you need to just get a lien release. And some companies are willing to do that pretty quickly. 
when you go to the right party. Again, you have to go to the right party. You can't just request it from someone random. They'll just tell you no. You got to approach it the right way. And you have to approach it the right way. And it's kind of annoying. And then, you know, if that doesn't do it, then you're looking at a more complicated negotiation of some kind of release. Sometimes you need to pay some money. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you might have to litigate. It is, uh, in a sense, a Mexican standoff situation because they know that you can't sell your house until that lien is released. Um, They also know that they're not going to get paid unless you sell your house because you've already not been paying them for a decade or so, and they're not in a position to foreclose effectively because of their second lien position and the equity status of the property. Uh, they probably know that. Otherwise, they would have done it already. And can they? Uh, and, I mean, there was a bankruptcy. Like, do and, they have to reopen the yeah, case? you got the old BK issue. Um, you end up with this situation where both sides are looking at a whole bunch of uncertainty in legal outcomes. How much is owed? That perhaps is a literally unanswerable question there's a high probability that in many of these scenarios, there is no single calculation that everyone can agree on. But I will provide and propose one and shove it down your throat. Everyone's (laughs) going to propose their calculation, but the numbers (laughs) may be very different between the two sides. And both sides are looking at a lot of risk. Both sides just want to get a deal done. So it's really a situation where um, both sides are incentivized to jerk the other around and, and prolong it in order to get a better deal but ultimately, everyone is incentivized to release that lien and close your sale because it's the only way they get money and it's the only way you get out of that house. Yes. Someone asked a question about latches and it's a really good one. Yeah, it um, is. The answer, probably not. Probably not. <laughs> Arizona doesn't like the latches argument. Um, this gets back it's to It's an equity actually, issue. Yes. This is the same reason that you can't get your post-judgment interest rate reduced by the judge. Because courts don't have discretion to invalidate uh, the enforceability of a contract just because they think it's not quite fair. Mm -hmm. That's different than the test for both substantive and procedural unconscionability to invalidate a contract. Um, That standard is extremely high and does not apply in these circumstances. Instead, we've got contracts that were not unconscionable when they were entered and everyone entered it. And we're trying to change the terms after the fact because we don't like the outcome. And in the case of applying latches to a situation where the contract statute of limitations and the other statutes of limitation that would apply aren't going to get you the favorable result you want, the answer is yet again going to be that the judge doesn't get to substitute equity for law. When there is a clear answer in law, and in the case of a default judgment, the clear answer is the interest rate is real and it does apply and you're not getting relief. Uh, And in the case of your mortgage, the answer is that there is an SOL uh, by statute and it applies. And that's that. Uh, In those circumstances, the judge can't substitute the doctrine of latches or any other equitable remedy to replace the contract term or statutory provision that would otherwise apply. Okay. I want to do one quick pro tip. Yeah. um, Because we had someone who asked the question, but usually you want to take a look at the loan document for the second mortgage and see when it matures. Because sometimes they're 15 years, sometimes they're 30 years, sometimes they're 20 years. So it really makes a difference. Why? Because a lot of these second mortgages are starting to mature this year in 2020, 2021, 2022, and so on and so forth. And it matters a lot because when they mature, the clock starts ticking on how long they have to sue to enforce collection. And in Arizona, it's six years. 
that's pretty statutory. It's a contract. It's also, you know, under Title 33. There's a couple different places you can look at it. If you want specific sources, happy to cite. Uh, just shoot me an email. And, um, you know, it, it's others, really going to matter. And under other circumstances for other types of claims that could be advanced, it may be a two-year clock. Yep. Um, and if you want any sources for that, you can look it up yourself. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I, I can talk shop about this literally all day. So again, this is kind of my uh, my jam. So if you've got specific questions related to this, ask me. If you're in another state, uh, I'm an Arizona attorney. Yeah, this is pretty Arizona specific. This so, all comes down to Arizona law and specifically Arizona case law on the few litigated and appealed cases on these issues. These are not litigated yet. Yeah. Like these issues with these matured second mortgages and how long are they valid and what are the options and can they foreclose on you even though you filed a bankruptcy? These are all questions waiting to be answered. The precedent on these... And you don't want to be first. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say the precedent on most of these questions is fairly clearly established, but it's not on point in the sense that the factual scenarios in the cases that establish the answers here were completely different. There are contract law and property law uh, cases that came up under completely different scenarios. So while you can look at it and say there is currently binding precedent, and these are mostly answerable questions with a few unanswered holes, uh, the reality is that uh, at some point there will be appeals on cases that run on these facts, residential mortgages with unpaid seconds that are old, uh, and all of the all of the crazy stuff that pops up as a result of it. And the results from those cases may be different than what we expect. It's possible that the courts of appeal uh, will end up coming out with something that's helpful to homeowners, but maybe not. And all of the evidence at this point indicates to not. Chances are the results from these will not be favorable to the homeowners. They're going to be favorable to the banks. Yeah, but, you know, that's why you want to get ahead of it now before... Yes. And that's why resolution focuses on negotiation. These are negotiated deals, um, and you need a good negotiator with experience doing those deals to, to get it done. Yeah, that's not to say that you don't just get a lien release. I get plenty of them. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes you do end up needing to negotiate with some money transferring hands, and how that's coordinated also matters a lot. So if you have these issues, feel free to call me. My number is 480-305-0603. You can also email me at hello at xfirmlaw.com. Happy to consult with anyone about their zombie debt issues. I know this was a, a legally complicated episode, so thanks for hanging in there. But we do think that it's important information that people should know because these are issues that are going to keep gnawing at your mind. <laughs> gnawing, at, gnawing at your mind. That's right. This is such a lively conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's about right. Yeah, this whole uh, the zombie second thing. This was a lot of fun a few years ago. We have just one minute left on the show, so I'm just going to pontificate on it. Uh, as Rochelle was first coming into this issue and starting to put together that it was a recurrent problem, because you know initially she got one client and then got another with a different situation that seemed remotely related, and then more, and then more, and more. And pretty soon the pattern emerged, and it became apparent that the people on the other side, representing the large banks and mortgage servicers and financial institutions, they didn't have a damn clue what was going on either. And in fact, many of them hadn't even put it together that there was a trend here and that there was a recurring situation that needed to be addressed. It's just a really interesting piece of fallout from the 2008 to 12 uh, economic disaster that we're still dealing with today. So 
ripples. Yeah, the ripples are really going out on that one. Great. That is our show for today. Uh, again, I'm Mike Holton with the law firm Holton and Royan. We do business law and consulting here in Phoenix. You can find us online at www.pmlaw.pro or give us a call at 602-427-5613. And this is Rochelle with Arizona Credit Law Group and X-Firm. Yes, and thanks for tuning in. And we will see you next time with Legitimate.